let's begin with prayer as we pray for uh, the Lord's blessing on our time. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can gather in your name, by your grace, opening up your word to grow and to learn and to be corrected and encouraged in all the different things that we need. And we pray for the dear saints around the world who join us via the Internet. Lord, may you bless them, bring them friends to pray together with, Christian fellowship, and everything that they need that they might grow in, in their knowledge of you. And as we open up the passage here in Second Corinthians, help us understand better, dear Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you emailed me and I sent out that Creatures of the Word article. And I got a, a couple of questions back on that, so let, let me explain some things that, so everybody can understand theologically what uh, Horton is talking about in that article. Someone questioned and said, well, it sort of sounds like that neo-orthodoxy. Is he teaching neo-orthodoxy? Well, no. And neo-orthodoxy says the Bible becomes the Word of God, all right, when you have this existential experience. But Horton wasn't talking about the meaning of the Scripture. He was talking about the effects of the Scripture. Neo-orthodoxy is an attack on the meaning of the Scripture. In other words, the Scripture's meaning, according to neo-orthodoxy, is not determined by the grammatical historical method. And the meaning of the Scripture, according to neo-orthodoxy, changes with the readers. Okay, It's not a static meaning that's always there. And we don't believe that. That's more the view, actually, that the emergent church takes. But uh, Horton is not neo-orthodoxy. He's not saying that the meaning changes. He, what he is saying is that the preached word has an effect. Uh, when God sends his word, it does what he sends it to do. He says, my word will not return to me void. It will accomplish what I send it to do. So, so discussion on the effect of the word is a little bit different topic than a discussion on the meaning. Okay, so I want to make that clarification. I don't know if we have any other old business, so let's, let's go on to our new business, which is 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16. Now, we were talking last week about Paul's uh, continual willingness to suffer and be beaten around and, and battered because he wanted grace to abound to, to the many. Okay? So that's what led to that discussion about creatures of the Word. The grace abounded to the many because Paul was willing to go preach the Word. So the Word is said here, Paul's ministry is bringing grace to people and abounding to the glory of God. And then it says in verse 16, Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, our inner man is being renewed day by day. I thought it was very... Uh, apropos for me today, being how my outer man is decaying. <laughs> so obviously this morning. And uh, so the, the good news is, now this is certainly true for all of us because of the effects of sin. Since the fall in Genesis, aging is a reality for all humans. And the effects of aging are accumulative, and are and so the so this decaying is true. It's actually we're winding down, and and we can only live just so long, no matter how healthy we are. So and that's what Paul's going to talk about this decaying, in the sense of uh, heading toward perish, perishing, dying. But the inner person. So here's the good news: the inner person is being renewed day by day. So uh, the Christian is being transformed by God's work of grace, and, God, and that's something God is doing every day. Every day God does a work of grace as we set, put ourselves under the means of grace, um, and which Ryan and I are always talking about, okay, as we gather in fellowship and pray together and read the Scriptures and, and have our own private prayers as we go before the throne of grace. Okay. I had a discussion uh, with some Lutherans because Lutherans don't believe that prayer is a means of grace. Um, 
and they don't, and, and they criticize people like Charles Hodge, who teach that it is. And I said, so, but I said, you know, you have to, when the scripture explicitly states something, we have to believe it. Okay, so let's let's look at what the scripture says about prayer in regard to grace. Okay, let's read chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. Here's what it says. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we might receive mercy and what may find grace to help in our time of need. So how do you go before the throne of grace? In prayer. Exactly. And so what do you find there? Grace. (laughs) And so I I said to my dear Lutheran friends, uh, this is so conclusive, you just can't argue with it. Okay? That when you go to the throne of grace, you find grace. And that you go to the throne of grace in prayer. And what does the grace do? It helps in time of need. So prayer is one important way by which we are being renewed day by day. How the inner person is being renewed day by day through prayer. And then um, sitting under the personal study of the word as well as hearing the word preached is a means that our inner person is being renewed day by day. And so it's important to realize that God changes lives by grace. By grace. Now, Paul, back to 2 Corinthians 4.16, Paul's apostolic boldness in preaching is such that he doesn't lose heart. Uh, he, he, he doesn't become fearful. In spite of all of the persecution, in spite of all the affliction, in spite, in spite of all the weakness, he's going to talk about his thorn in the flesh in this same book, Second Corinthians 12, that he sought deliverance from, and the Lord allowed him to keep it so that he wouldn't be exalted with pride. And, and the Lord said, My grace is sufficient for you. Okay? Now, uh, he, he, he doesn't lose any boldness, and that's the therefore, because he must continue to boldly preach the gospel in spite of bodily weakness, in spite of difficulties, in spite of all of these afflictions, because that's the way God brings grace to more and more, according to verse 15. So um, there's, a, there's a double, in the Greek, we have a couple of adversatives. So an adversative creates generally a contrast. Uh, the Greek word is Allah. Allah. The Greek word means but. And it's a strong adversity of it sets things apart. But here's a double one. It's used twice. New American Standard, the first time translates it but, the second time yet. And uh, one of the scholars says this the double adversity is add emphasis and begin a series of contrasts between the present affliction and the eternal glory that follows. So there are a series of contrasts that we're going to see develop in uh, these verses as we go on. Frankly, the chapter division is not laid out very well here. Okay? Um, chapter, the chapter, most people looking at this say chapter 5 should have began at verse 16. All right? But, you know, the convention is such that it is. You know that in the original Greek there were no chapter divisions or verses. It was just all ran together. So people, people studying it decide, well, I think here's where the chapter is. And then that was done a long, long time ago. And so whatever the convention is doesn't get changed by anybody's Bible. But you could consider the thought. Because if you look at verse 16, you have this inner, outer Momentary. Then you have verse 17, contrast between the momentary and the eternal, the affliction and the glory, the seen and not seen. Verse 18 is, a, is another co- continuation. And then uh, if you go on into 2 Corinthians chapter 5, you'll see he continues with this theme of the temporal and the eternal, the now and the, and the then. Uh, 
2 Corinthians 5, then, as, as you see, it carries on that thought. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is a house, is torn down, we have a building from God eternal in heaven. So it's the same thought. Okay? It's not a new idea or a new development. So chapter 5 probably began at verse 16 of chapter 4, just the way it is. And then he goes on and continues with that theme in chapter 5 for a ways. Okay? So the contrast between uh, that which is perishing, that which is afflicted, that which is temporal, and that which is eternal, and that which is going to, after we die, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so the outer man is decaying, but the inner is being renewed. Day by day by day. Now let me, let me give you, bring up an issue that comes up. All right, when we say we believe in progressive sanctification, which we do, or when we look at a verse like this that God's renewing the inner person day by day, some people think that that means that the Christian life is always steady progress and we never have any uh, setbacks. But that's just not, <laughs> maybe it is for you. <laughs> but that's not what we're claiming when we say progressive sanctification. We're saying that God is at work through his means to change our lives. But it doesn't mean we don't go backwards sometimes. All right? Um, I think some years ago I, I shared an illustration that I'd actually heard by John Gerstner, theologian John Gerstner. He was telling about a highway in a mountainous part of the Northeast. And I can't remember what highway he named the highway. But he said that, that you'll be on this highway and it'll say east, whatever it is. All right? The highway sign says east, so-and-so. And he says almost half the time you're actually going west. Because they, you know, because they had to go around the mountain. And so, uh, he says, sometimes the Christian life's like that. You, you may have some uh, detours and, and sometimes seemingly going backwards, but if you get on the road with the Lord, He's going to take you to your destination. Okay? So, in that sense, He's bringing us along. So, we're being renewed day by day. Um... Okay, let's just read some verses. Um, Zeke, do you want to read Psalm 27.3? And then Gail, Psalm 51.10. And Pauline, Isaiah 40, 29 and 31. Isaiah 40, 29 and 31. Gail, Romans 12.2. Michelle, Ephesians 3.16. Levon, Colossians 3.10. Denise, 1 Peter 3.4. And then I, I have a note to myself to go to Acts 28 to see the pagan worldview. Okay? <laughs> go, uh, go ahead. Um. Ready? Psalm 27.3. Yes. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. The water arise against me. In spite of this, I shall be confident. Okay? No matter how bad it is, the psalmist remains confident in the Lord. And then um, uh, Psalm 51... Wait a second. Yeah, that's right. Psalm 51.10, is that what I gave you? Right. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Yeah, Psalm 51 was the psalm of David's repentance. And so he's asking God to, to give him a clean heart and to, and to be do a, an inner work of renewal from the inside. Isaiah 40, 29, and 31. He gives power to the weak, and to those who have no might, he increases strength. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Amen. What does it mean to wait on the Lord? Brian, Brian talks about that in his seminar, what it doesn't mean. It means simply to be patient, to lean on and not lean on our own, our own understanding. Yeah. Patiently trusting God will keep his promises. It doesn't mean silencing the mind. Right. Okay. So, that was a good, good reading. Astute reading. And, and you really can see that a lot in Isaiah. The, the, 
the issue in uh, Isaiah, and Isaiah's ministry spans several kings, but in their time they were threatened. During the time of the book of Isaiah, they were threatened by the Assyrian Empire. Okay? And um, there were... And there were battles, various battles that happened during Isaiah's lifetime. And the thing that they were tempted to do was to go make an alliance with Egypt so that Egypt would bring their horses and chariots and help Israel, you know, against Assyria. And the prophet was, kept telling them, don't go down to Egypt for help. Woe to those who go to Egypt for help and seek a counsel that's not mine. That's what it says. And so, when, in that context, when, when Isaiah talked about waiting on the Lord, it was a very real thing. Because this is a big empire, and they're stronger than us, and they can destroy us. And we have to believe that God's going to protect us from them? Yes. And so, waiting on the Lord, the opposite of it would be to run down to Egypt and make a deal and get Egypt to protect you instead of the Lord. That, that's what that was going on. Adina. Yeah, yeah. She asked, "Isn't Israel still doing that?" Well, unfortunately, until God takes the blinders off, I think they're going to continually try to make deals. And you know, Jan Markell talks about that a lot on her radio show. And every time they try to make a deal with somebody, it backfires. Bill. Uh, they also manipulate the United States government into funding, perhaps. Perhaps billions of dollars of United States money into Israel to, you know, for the purposes of protection. There's, there's a huge history about uh, everything from stealing the, the uh, atomic bomb uh, formula in World War II all the way to stealing F-15 plants. Well, I, I would be, I'm in favor of us being allies with Israel, but I'm not in favor of Israel making deals to give away land. Okay. Um, uh, okay, Dina here. And then, how do we get it on this? Oh, waiting on the Lord. Okay. <laughs> I just got an email this week from Hal Lindsey. Yeah. He sent out an email, to, just not to me, to everyone. <laughs> and he's and in it it says that Shimon Perez has now come up with an agreement, and they're going to be dealing with the Palestinians and giving them the West Bank, and then they're going to be dealing, they're going to be giving them part of somewhere up north of Tel Aviv, and that. This oh. is supposed to be happening this fall. Good grief. Okay. What was your verse? His verse? Okay. Back here. Romans 12.2. Okay. There you go. Do not be transformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may approve what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Yes. We did that recently on the radio. There's two different words there, but it says... One, way to, one, uh, one good way to translate it is don't be conformed, but be transformed. So if we're not being transformed by the renewal of our mind through the truth of God, we will end up conformed to the world. Because the world is very good at putting everybody in its mold. Worldly thinking is just what happens when the Word of God isn't influencing somebody. All right, what was the next verse then? Ephesians 3.16 that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. Okay. There again talks about the inner man being strengthened. Then we had um, Colossians 3.10. Mm-hmm. Um, talks about the Christian and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Put on the new self. There's a, an analogy that Paul uses in Ephesians and in Colossians of, of clothing. Literally, put off the old self, put on the new self. And God is renewing that new person, the new creature in Christ, which, by the way, Second Corinthians 5:17 says that we're new creations. So that, that concept is there as well. And then we had 1 Peter, 1 Peter 3, 4. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. If you want to turn with me to Acts 28. And I want to talk a little bit about 
the thinking that the Corinthians were, were having and how it was basically pagan. The Corinthians were thinking, at least the super apostles were telling them, Paul obviously is not a man of God because look at how afflicted he is. Okay? Now, that, that reveals itself to be pagan thinking. Let me show you how the pagans think. Isaiah, or excuse me, Acts 28, start with verse 1. Paul's shipwreck story. And when they had been brought safely through, then we found out that the island was called Malta, and the natives showed us extraordinary kindness, for because of the rain that had set in and because of the cold, they kindled a fire and received us all. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on a fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. And when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hands, they began saying to one another, Undoubtedly, this man is a murderer, and though he has been saved from the sea, justice, justice has not allowed him to live. And, it, and, it's, and this is a personification of a goddess. Okay? So uh, somehow uh, Paul's getting what he deserved because this thing fastened onto his hands, so it proves he's not a righteous man. So that's how they thought. Verse 5, however, he shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. But, but they were expecting that he was about to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. <laughs> and after they had waited a long time and seen nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and began to see he was a god. <laughs> <laughs> so you see their pagan worldview in full operation, you know. And what were they thinking? Well, if something bad happens, it shows that you have bad fate and the gods have gotcha. If something supernatural happens, it proves you are a god. And so you see their pagan worldview. And um, pagan thinking is the default mode for the entire human race. If you just find any, any it doesn't matter. It's not, it's not about what race or what country. All humans, if you leave them to themselves to come up with a religion, will come up with a pagan worldview. And it's always a view that there are these this polytheistic, there's always the gods and goddesses. Uh, there's always fate. There's always some religious practice to try to get rid of your bad fate and to protect yourself from the evil gods and goddesses and manipulate the good ones to help you. That's paganism. I'm going to, uh, I'm actually going to um, go and speak about this in, um, in Barbados in November. I'm doing a conference on this because... Uh, some people asked me to come down because the, the spiritual warfare movement has come into their culture, to the church so much, and is basically taking Christians and teaching them a pagan worldview. And, and that's what most of the spiritual warfare teachings are, is just a pa- pagan worldview, if they're not true, the true uh, teachings. Um, and the, People are afraid. I probably I haven't decided yet how I'll approach it, but I may just go start the seminar by teaching Colossians too. Just go teaching right through Colossians and saying, here's what how this happened before it happened in Colossae. Pagan worldview came into the Christian church, and as a result, they had all of these practices to try to scare off the demons, uh, and they added to the cross. Yes. Yeah, I know. So I'll, I'll, it'll be interesting. It's been quite a few years since I've done a seminar on this, so I'm going to have to... I don't have any PowerPoints or anything, so I'm going to have to start over. Uh, okay, so uh, I had something here. I was supposed to look for a quote. Let's read the next verse while I'm getting here, getting this document out. It says, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. The word, uh, interesting Greek word for comparison there, hyperbole, uh, hyperbole, and it's our word hyperbole. Our word hyperbole comes right out from the Greek word hyperbole for comparison. Um, so, four, 
I wanted to read some of these contrasts for you. Did I do this last week? Did I show, no, I didn't show you the contrast, did I? Look at the contrast. This, these are contrasts between 4.16 and 5.9. Remember, the te- chapter division is artificial. Outward man, inner man, 4.16. Wasting away, being renewed, 4.16. Slight, beyond measure, 4.17. Momentary, eternal, 4.17 and 18. Affliction and glory, 4.17. What can be seen, what cannot be seen, 4.18. Tent-like house, building from God, 5.1 and 2. Earthly, heavenly, 5.1. Destroyed, eternal, 5.1. Stripped naked, clothed, 5.2 through 4. Mortality, life, 5.4. Preparation, the guarantee of the Holy Spirit, not yet, 5.5. Sight, faith, 5-7, at home in the body, away from the Lord, 5-7 through 9. So there's an extended section of, of converse comparisons. The lesser to the greater. The lesser thing and the greater thing are being compared. And the greater thing is the spiritual work of God renewing us day by day and the eternal house that he has prepared for us and the momentary light affliction should not deter us from our ministries. It should not deter us from the calling of God on our lives. And we just need to keep plugging away however we can. With the, I was, I was, last week when my voice went out, and again, again this week, I'm, I was talking to Diane, and that really scares me more than, than you might think, because I have to preach the gospel. And so, that's why I say, Lord, I'll preach it, even, even with frogs in my throat, but I, please, let me keep preaching. <laughs> and so, um, but Paul, but, but I'm not any special. Look at, look at everything Paul had to go through to try to preach. So, what can't be compromised is the motivation to do so. And the Lord says, my grace is sufficient for you. And so... They'll keep me preaching even if I have allergies. Um, now, there's a little warning that I, I read in one of my scholarly sources that I think is important. We need to be careful because this material has been misinterpreted often in church history to be uh, sort of like a platonic philosophy. That, that is, if Paul was teaching a Greek dualism like, like Plato. You know, that the material realm is inferior and the spirit, the realm of ideas is superior, and then interpret Paul along the lines of Greek dualism. But Paul is not teaching Greek dualism. Paul is a converted Jewish rabbi. All right? And the Jewish understanding of the person was not dualistic. The whole person comes to God, the whole person is important. The whole person. Ultimately, in fact, in fact that's, why the do- that's why the doctrine of the bodily resurrection is so important. Because the Greeks would think it was silly to preserve a body. But not so in Jewish thinking. All right? Yes, Dick. Well, on verse 17, where he says, for momentary light affliction, he's not talking about a hiccup in our drive to church on a Sunday morning. He's talking about a career of 30 years of serving the Lord and all of it under affliction, right? Lifetime. Yeah, yeah that's all eternity. I ever had. Versus eternity. Yeah, yeah, a whole lifetime of it. Um, I'm going to read some more material about this thing and, and, uh, to defend Paul against the charge of being a Greek dualist. Um, quoting again from Mr. Garland, Thrall describes the outer as the whole person as seen by others from without, and the inner person is one's unseen personality, visible only to God and in part to oneself. Furnish defines the outer per- person as that aspect of one's humanity, which is subject to the various assaults and hardships of historical existence. I agree with that. Okay. This, basically, it isn't that the body is evil and the soul is good. And it isn't that the material world is evil and the spiritual world is good. That's Greek dualistic thinking. It's that the body is subject to decay. Because of the fall. But to show the body is important, God has promised a resurrection body. There's, and I'm going to read something about that in 1 Corinthians 15. 
Uh, continuing this quote, Paul's mortal existence is constantly wasting away and rushing headlong toward death. Paul's inner existence, united with Christ, is always being renewed and proceeding toward ever-increasing glory. He's not opposing body and soul, but the inner human being from the outer human being, existence determined by worldly circumstances and the possibilities from existence determined by the power of the one who raised Christ from the dead. The outer person is what belongs to this world that is temporary and crumbling and what those who only evaluate things from a fleshly perspective can see. By contrast, the inner person belongs to that which has ultimate significance and is being transformed and prepared for resurrection life through God's matchless power. Paul will um, confess in 2 Corinthians 5.16 that he too once judged Christ from the same outward worldly criteria and as a result had misjudged him. Remember Paul said we've known Christ according to the flesh, but know him not any longer? I never know what that meant. What do we mean we knew Christ according to the flesh? Well, I agree with this interpretation, and that's that when Paul was still a Jewish rabbi, his idea of Christ according to the flesh was that no crucified person could be our Messiah. Because cursed is he who's hanging on the tree. So looking at the outward appearance, here's a man who was rejected by the leaders and, and, and died a shameful death and was cursed by hanging on a tree. Looking at it according to the flesh, that can't be the Messiah. But now he looks at Christ through the eyes of faith as a converted rabbi, a converted teacher, and he sees that... Um, here, let me read, read on. Only after his conversion could he see beyond the damning judgment of the law that everyone hanged on a tree is accursed of God and recognize that the crucified Jesus was the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20. Yes. Well, you said earlier uh, we were reading passages about uh, Paul being bitten by a viper and then they, they called him cursed. Uh, and then because he lived, they called him a god. Right. And then you said, well, it shows the uh, uh, magical worldview, pagan worldview of, of their thinking. It went from totally one end of the pendulum to the other. But here we see in Jesus Christ uh, hanging on a cross, and that man was cursed because uh-huh. he who hangs on a, on a, on a, a tree is cursed, uh-huh. and yet he lived. Yeah, amen. So he our, was raised our, from the dead. So, so are, are, are we double-minded by calling uh, Paul not a god and Jesus Christ a god? No, because Jesus is unique uh, in, in the sense that uh, we believe in his pre-existence as God and with God, which isn't true about Paul. And Jesus uniquely claimed to be God the Son, which wasn't true about Paul. Jesus uniquely did things to prove his deity, like walking on water, raising the dead, giving eyesight to the blind, things that Isaiah says God alone does, Jesus does, and that was a sign to John the Baptist that he was the Son of God. And the, the, the most remarkable thing that Jesus did was predicted in his own resurrection from the de- dead. Before he was crucified, he said he'd be crucified, and he said he'd be raised. So that makes him God. Now, Paul was just a man who got bit. <laughs> All right? And Paul wasn't making any such claims about himself. So that's a good question, and... Give me a good chance to talk about Jesus. I like that. <laughs> All right. So the uniqueness of Christ comes through. Now, um, well, let's see. I think the narrative takes us a different direction after that, but I'll, I'm willing to look it up. Notice that it was one of the passages with the we, so apparently Luke was there. I wish, I wish Acts followed Luke in my Bible, like it should. <laughs> See, I'm always wanting to rearrange the Bible. Because <laughs> Luke-Acts is two-volume work, and it should be put together as two volumes so people don't get confused and think that it's just like some totally different kind of document. Oh, okay, here's what happened. Um, the father of Publius was lying in bed, 
fever, Paul went to see him. After he had prayed, he laid his hands on him and healed him. And after this happened, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases were coming to him and getting cured. And they also honored us with many marks of respect. In the end of three months, we set sail. It doesn't say, it doesn't give us detail about any sermons, but of course, Paul preached the gospel. He did that everywhere he went. Yeah, I'm sure he did. Yeah. Okay, but that's what's in the narrative. Um, Paul's goal was to end up in Rome before the house, the court of, of Caesar. And according to Philippians, he did. He, the word, because they put him in his own rented quarters, they had to send guards to make sure Paul didn't run away. And so they, and they rotated the guards. And so because of that, he just kept preaching the gospel to all the guards. And, the gospel, and they, then they'd take it back with them. And then the gospel spread all the way through the upper echelons of Rome. That's how God worked in Paul's life. Okay, so uh, the inner and outer thing is important, but uh, it's, it's, it's very important not to misconstrue this in, in, in the sense of uh, Greek dualism because that is not Paul's intent, and he makes that clear in 1 Corinthians where he preaches on the resurrection. So, verse 17, the momentary, now notice the contrast, momentary, Light affliction. Now, he's being uh, humble there. I mean, Paul's affliction is anything but light if we look at what all he went through. But it's light in comparison with eternity. Um, Isn't that a difficult concept to imagine? I don't know why I was. Yesterday I was imagining eternity. I I was just thinking. What would it... Oh, I was listening to my gospel quartet music. And, and so much of it is about eternity. I'm listening to this whole stuff from the 70s, really four-part gospel quartet. And they were singing about that they're going to be going where there's no more night, and the Lamb is the light, and all, all those kind of things. And so I, that got my mind on this. this is, one day, we're going to always, always, always exist without any afflictions, without any sorrows, without any pain, without any sin. <laughs> Does that sound good? <laughs> yes, Dan. When I think of affliction, I, I got waylaid this morning, and I uh, pulled into the gas station. And our light affliction, I call it, is nothing compared to the lost affliction. Anyway, I looked and I saw this guy picking up cans. And I went over there and I recognized him, because I used to clean the phone company for 15 years next to the drug den, one of the biggest drugs troubled man I've ever known. And I went over and talked to him. And he told me the affliction that he's under. Satan's children. The affliction. But now he's sober and dry. But that's not good enough. You know, he was happy. He was sober and dry picking up cans. And I said, but you need one more thing. He was excited about somewhat delivery from affliction. He says, I'm worn out, Dan. I'm full of affliction. And I thought, what affliction do I have? The only affliction I have is the joy of telling the gospel. And even if I got killed for it, it's joy. And he told me of his affliction, his affliction. And I got to give him stuff in the Lord and about the Lord and how he lit up, how he wanted to do something and pray for him, put my arm around him. Yeah, when Jesus walked, these people were afflicted like me when somebody told me the gospel. Talk about affliction. Going to hell, knowing you a child of hell, being under that pressure. And he looked in the eyes today. He's 50, almost 60. I'm worn out, Dan. 40 years of drugs. He jumped off a second-story building in Hastings when they were after him for cocaine. And he lived. Why am I alive? I said, you're alive to be sober. Not to be a sober ex-drug addict, a sober drunk, but to put your face. We want to do something. He said, his eyes are all lit up. So I give him a whole bunch of stuff. Call me my name. Call me. There's the affliction. And we get the little light affliction telling people, what joy. What joy to take the afflicted like Jesus walked along. The sick, the afflicted, the hard up. Jesus, yes, he was afflicted, but he was God. But he could take their afflictions, the real afflictions. We take our little light afflictions, and we can help them. So you shared the gospel with him? Yeah, he was excited. Never seen. Give me stuff. Give me stuff. You know, <laughs> these are the laws. Like, Good. They've been forgiven a lot. God, God bless you. Reading. You know what? Thanks for doing that. If you're hungry, they've been forgiven a lot. A billion dollar debt. And he got all excited about the word of God. Wanted to give it out. He don't even hardly know it yet. <laughs> That's the way we should be. I don't Amen. Amen. <laughs> Thanks for sharing the gospel, Dan, with the with the afflicted man. So our light affliction is producing an eternal weight of glory, 
far beyond all comparison. And beyond comparison, in other words, we don't have anything in, in, in our world that's exactly analogous to heaven. Okay? Only what God has chosen to give us glimpses of in, in various passages of the Bible, particularly in Revelation. And uh, what exactly will it be like? Well, the greatest thing is that we'll be in the presence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We'll be free from all sin. We won't even want to sin. We will only want what is God's will. And we'll have an entire eternity to continue to learn. Remember, Ryan was preaching last week about communicable and incommunicable attributes. That was so good. Omnipotence is not communicable. Omnipotence is all power. Omniscience is not communicable. Knowledge is communicable, but not omniscience. And and Ryan made a good point. Since omniscience is not communicable, that means we can never we can continue to learn throughout eternity more about God. Because he has more to teach us than what we can ever learn in all eternity. I like that idea. I like learning. <laughs> okay, um, some passages. Are, I'm sorry, I don't know your name. Do you want to read one? Joan. Joan? Could you read Psalm 30 and verse 5 and Joanne, Psalm 73, 24, and Dick, Psalm 119, 67 and 71. 67 and 71. And then uh, Troy, Matthew 5, 12, Alice. Acts 20:23, and um, Boaz, James 1:12, uh, Chad, Romans 5, 3 through 5. I have one more. We'll go back to uh, Floyd. Do you want to read one? Uh, 1 Peter 5:10. Okay, our first verse is Psalm 30 and verse 5. For his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night. But a shout of joy comes in the morning. (laughs) That's a great passage. Once we've fled from the wrath of God through the blood atonement, then we have the joy of salvation for all eternity. Amen. Amen. That's wonderful. Okay, the next one was uh, Psalm 73:24. And with your counsel you will guide me, and afterward receive me to glory. Amen. We used to sing that. With your counsel, you will guide me, and afterwards receive me to glory. We had a, we had somebody put that to music at one time. Okay, and then you had um, a couple on Psalm 119. 119, 67, and 71. Okay. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. In 71, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. When I was, before I was afflicted, I went astray. <laughs> so God knows exactly what afflictions we need so we don't keep going astray. Wow. Oh. Then, um, Matthew 5.12? Yes. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Rejoice and be, ge- be glad. <laughs> Oh, Jesus said that, didn't he? Yeah. It's kind of hard to do that. I'll start from 22. And now, behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. Yeah, so he was going to Jerusalem to, to find... Because he, he knew he, uh, uh, that was Acts 20, 23. Um, that whole section, I love that chapter of Acts. Paul's address to the Ephesian elders is so good and so important, absolutely important material. Because there, we, for one thing, is revealed what's the most important thing that elders have to do, which is to guard the flock against the wolves. But you also, as Paul bears his heart, because they're trying to talk him out of going, because they, they don't want him to go. And he says, I don't hold my life as dear to myself. I, I must go. Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? Paul said. So, and then, uh, Lois, you had one in James. James 1.12.
Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, and when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Okay, so there's a blessing for going through trials and temptations. Romans 5, 3-5. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Wow. So there's a progression of character qualities and things that God is working in believers, according to that very good, very interesting passage. Okay. Uh, 1 Peter 5, verse 10. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Amen. So the Lord is at work. Uh, another comment by a scholar here says, Paul characterized the present which is marked by tribulation as brief in duration and trifling in comparison to what God has in store for believers. Now, this term hyperbole, hooper, is under, and then bole is a word for weight. But beyond all measure is, is, is probably a good description of that word in the Greek. He used to describe his sufferings in Asia when he says that he was unbearably crushed beyond all measure. Where we get our word hyperbole, hyper, hooperbole, hooperbole. He now evaluates that affliction and all his afflictions differently. The incredible eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison outweighs any earthly afflictions and makes them look like a tiny storm in his teacup. Since the persecution affects only the outer nature that is wasting away, is destined to pass and to be replaced with something far more glorious. And that's what God has in store for those who love him. So let's go to verse 18. While we look at the things which are seen, but at, but at the things which are, excuse me, but while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, the things which are not seen are eternal. Now, this is a profound insight. It's one that comes by revelation in the scriptures because the uh, pagans had various ideas about the earth being eternal itself or the sun being eternal. In fact, in my passage I'm preaching on in Exodus, there was a, when the sun was darkened, that was a rebuke to one of the Egyptian gods. And I found, a, and I'll share a quote from the ancient Near East texts with you during the sermon. But basically, what it says is that the Egyptians thought that the, the one god that could never be stopped was the sun because nobody could keep it from coming up. Nobody could stop the eternal rising sun. And when God made it black for three days, that scared Pharaoh more than any other one of the plagues. Then he was ready to let him go, sort of. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll get ahead of myself. But the Pharaoh had, had a little bit of problem with being stubborn, didn't he? <laughs> and then some. Okay, so the, the, but this is a profound insight now. Modern science would agree that the universe is not eternal because of entropy. And they believe that the universe we're in now will eventually die of heat loss because entropy means you're always losing energy. Unless there's an external source feeding energy into a system, the system will eventually die. That's why there's no perpetual motion machine that can be invented, because no matter how efficient you make your machine, it needs energy or it'll die. It'll die out. You always lose energy in every closed system. And since the universe, even by the, according to the, especially according to the naturalistic observers, 
is a closed system. Because in their mind, there's no God to feed energy into it. Okay? So it has only so much energy, and, and it will run out of that available energies according to so many billions of years, however they do that calculation. So it's not eternal. Now, that's exactly what Paul says. We can see the universe. It's not eternal. The sun is not eternal. The earth is not eternal. Everything is going to go ultimately to chaos other than what we know is really going to happen is God's going to come and bring judgment and create a new heaven and a new earth where it involves righteousness. But we know that because we have the Bible. Um, yes, the mic for Brian. I'm sorry, I had to make a joke. So in other words, if you're going to pray to the universe, you better do it soon. <laughs> you got to pray to the universe do it soon? <laughs> yeah, that's what you used to do, right? Yeah, pray to the universe. Yeah, I had somebody tell, I was witnessing to to uh, this person, and she says to me, um, well, I put myself in the hands of the universe. And I said, well, the universe is impersonal. What makes you think an impersonal universe cares about you? Only a, a true, I said, God is personal, and he created the world out of nothing, and he does care about us, Amen. according to the scripture. Amen. But the universe is impersonal. So the universe isn't going to solve your problems. No. <laughs> That's what I told her. <laughs> <laughs> now, oh, we only got one minute left. I'll, I'll wait for this. Uh, next, oh, next week, we're going to continue, right? N- next week, uh, uh, Ryan is going to join me, and we're going to both... Uh, he said that there was so much discussion about this um, two wills in God, hyper-Calvinism, all those things, the universal call of the gospel, uh, that there was a desire to continue the discussion, the one that Ryan led while I was on vacation. So we'll continue the discussion. It'll be the both of us. Uh, we think so much alike. Anyhow, it's... You know what happened Sunday, Ryan, to prove how much we think alike? I was sitting there with, my ver- with the outline, with the verses... And you were, you were going to the next verse, and I wrote underneath the verse, communicable, incommunicable attributes. I wrote that down first, and then you said it. And I'm going, this is scary. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know uh, if it's good or bad that our minds work the same way. <laughs> but uh, he went right with what I was writing down. Yeah, we we got to talk about those communicable attributes in this verse. Now, uh, so we'll do that now. Then, and then also next Sunday is Carl doing part two on his sermon on the will of God. All right. Uh, yeah, Joe. Could I have a could I have a footnote on the uh, deity of the sun and the moon? Uh, we have to be in Brazil during a time of eclipse, and of course the, the sun and the moon were their major deities. And this is very, uh, let's just say, disconcerting to the to the natives about the the, the two battling themselves. And fortunately, this is not total, so they didn't go completely bonkers there. But, of course, then they have the witch doctors who hold ceremonies to rescue the, the sun from the moon. <laughs> then afterwards, of course, then the witch doctors go around and get to collect uh, money for services rendered. <laughs> so the eclipse go away and they pay the witch doctor for getting rid of it. Well, you know, but that's a, thanks for sharing that story, Joe. That shows why Pharaoh was so scared. Because this went on for three days. And so somebody had defeated the sun god. 